Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome to New Books Network. This is the spirituality and mindfulness channel in the New Books Network. And my name is Jack Petranker, and I'll be the host today. So um, it's a great pleasure to be able to um, interview Tanya Lurman and talk to her about her new book, How God Becomes Real. Well, Tanya, welcome to the broadcast. It's great to be here. Thank you, Jack. Um, can you tell us something about your background? Sort of how did you get involved? I mean, I know you're an anthropology, but, but mm-hmm. anyway, I'll leave it up to you. So I'm an anthropologist. I think that I became an anthropologist because I was kind of a spiritual mutt. So my mother was the daughter of a Baptist minister, but a Northern Baptist minister but a pretty conservative Christian, and her sisters and her sister's sons all became quite conservative Christians of the sort you might call fundamentalist or um, evangelical would be another kind of term. Uh, My father's parents were Christian scientists, and he went to medical school. And as you know, Christian science is 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 a faith in which people believe that or talk as if the, the, um, the power of one's faith means that you will, do, will not fall ill. And so people do not go to, to doctors. My mother drifted away from the church. And so I grew up in this world of many different faith commitments. You know, my, my parents, um, my, my maternal grandparents, my mother paternal grandparents who lived in an Orthodox Jewish neighborhood. You know, it was, um, I I, I was in a a flow of different kinds of understandings of reality. That's so, that's so interesting. I, and, and of course, I imagine you didn't say it to yourself that way at the time uh, in the flow of different realities, but that's very much related to the way you're, to your work. So, mm-hmm. so how did you get from there to anthropology? I think, you know, I, I, I think I always was really interested in how things become real for people. And there, there was something so deep in the sense that the world was differently real. And as you say, I wouldn't have articulated it that way at the time, but I was always deeply fascinated in how people came to know the presence of invisible beings. And so I actually started out in college at, as, as, a, you know, as a student of philosophy. And although I re- realize this is a very naive thing to say, it felt like, as if philosophy cheated, as if you know somebody like Kant just came up with a clever answer to explain how we saw the world in similar or dissimilar ways. And I became really interested in how 
you know, what we knew of how people did that, what it was like to live in different worlds and how those, how those differences came to feel as if they were sort of obdurate, um, as if there was something there, there in the world um, that was different. And so I spent a lot of time over the course of my career in different phases. My, my dissertation was on middle-class people who practice witchcraft and magic. Um, I have spent time in a kind of, in a world of Zoroastrians in then Bombay who were seeking to make a more mystical faith. I've spent time with charismatic evangelical Christians. But I've also been initiated into Santeria, which is this kind of um, you know, Anglo-Cuban spirit possession practice. I spent a year in a Balchiva shul, a, a, a Jewish uh, temple, where newly Orthodox people come to learn what it is to be deeply committed to, to ritual practices. Um, there was a black Catholic church. There were you know, a whole variety of different kinds of faiths. And so this book is really my attempt to sum up what I think I've learned. Right. So the book before this um, was called When God Talks Back, right? Mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not missing one in there, am I? No. Well, okay. there, was a, there was a book on schizophrenia called Our Most Troubling Madness, which was a collection of, sort of thoughts and case studies about uh, psychosis, which is sort of the dark cousin of religious experience. Uh, so there, there was that, but certainly in the religious domain, this is when God talks back with, with the last book. Right. So, so as you say, I, I mean, one of the things that's different about this book from when God talks back was that was focused on your experience with one particular religious community. I mean, several communities, but they all shared the same basic outlook. Mm-hmm. Um, and and in this case, you really range across a number of different communities mm-hmm. and and different beliefs. So. It's as though you're kind of looking back on your career. Is is that fair to say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A little disconcerting, but true. <laughs> right. I understand. <laughs> you know, and, and to me, you know, I think, you know, what I decided was that the most important question to ask about faith is not, you know, why, but how. When we focus on why people believe we're really focusing on why other people, why those people think those foolish things. But when you ask how people come to experience God is real, it makes you focus on what people do and on how those practices change people, how God comes to feel more or real to people. Um, and then, you know, I realized that that, to me, this is also the key to why faith becomes so important to people, because I think that as practices change people, as God comes to feel more real, those the changes, the process through which God comes to feel more real changes people often in positive ways, not always, but often in ways that are really help to explain why people stick with the faith, despite what a skeptic would say is evidence to the contrary. Yeah, so I, I, that makes sense to me, and and it makes me think of the fact that 
you know, so I'm involved in Buddhism. I'm a Buddhist. Mm -hmm. And my background is Jewish. And, and as of course, you know, there's a lot of, um, there are a lot of people who come to Buddhism from Judaism. And, and mm -hmm. I'm sure there are a lot of different reasons for that. But one reason that I've found for myself and, and other people is that um, a lot of people grew up in a Jewish tradition in which this whole question of engagement and and the realness of 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 god let's say or the realness of spirituality it just wasn't talked about it wasn't that's not where the focus went and so there was an emptiness there there was a, mm -hmm. a, a void waiting to be filled mm -hmm. the other thing that i see in the relationship was that the belief in a supernatural other is not so salient to judaism and it's a little complicated because the, the sacred book and the practices are all full of this reference to God. But you know, what God asks of a faithful Jewish person is practice. Is, and the practice can seem as if it's not very much about prayer or about meditation. It can seem as if it's this very silly stuff like how, whether you can eat cottage cheese with your, you know, with your salmon, whether, you know, whether, whether you know, or with your steak, whether you, whether you can um, mix different kinds of foods, whether you can wear skirts of a certain length, whether you need to, you know, walk on the Sabbath or whether you can get into a car and to drive. And that, um, so to, I think, to many young intellectual Jews who become Buddhists, that stuff seems just so, like it's not getting at the real, you know, that, that the heart doesn't really get at the heart of what it means to be a person of faith. Yes, and, and nonetheless, as you point out, and you have a whole section in your book, in your book where you talk about um, the community of, of students, well, people who have come to the Jewish faith, but they don't really know that much about it. And so they're learning what it means to be a Jew. Mm -hmm. And specifically in the sense of this is how you practice. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, this is where you can go to eat lunch because any other place won't work in terms of the commitments you've made. Um, yeah. and, and, and it strikes me that, you know, when I had, if I would have read something about that when I was a young man, um, I, yeah, I wouldn't have thought, I said, what's religious about this? This is just a bunch of rules and restrictions. And yet reading it now, reading it in your book, and perhaps in the context that you provide, mm -hmm. um, it, it really, I, I could see, I could say, yes, this is, this is what it means to be a practicing person of faith. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I was so moved by in spending time with this, what was called the Baal Shiva Shul, so there's this shul where people knew to, Orthodox commitment would come. And, they, and as you say, they wanted more. And for them, Buddhism was not the answer. They wanted this more traditional, historically old um, way of practicing. And I became quite fascinated by something that I thought resonated in other faiths. So the puzzle is, if you're going to talk about a god, and again, you know, you can be a, a good observant Jew without believing in God, but there's a lot of talk about God. 
if you're going to talk about God, how do, how does your faith allow you to recognize God's presence and engage with, with God? And one of the things that I really saw um, in Judaism, in this version of Judaism, but I also see in other faiths, is that there's this a way of imagining the world with God in it. And the, the stories of tradition need to map out to the incomer, incoming person, you know, how they're going to how they're going to in effect step into what I call a paracosm, a way of imagining the world with God in it. Who is a member of the community? Who's you know a paracosm is a shared imagined world, and I don't mean to suggest by that that God is imaginary, but you know you can't see God, so you have to use your imagination. You have to be able to. You know, represent, and you know, another way of talking about this is that you've got to be able to imagine the world as it should be alongside of the world as it is. And to imagine, the to enter this paracosm, so I think really good faiths provide a paracosm for people to enter in a shared way of imagining the world. They have to say, who is a member of this group who can encounter this God. How do you recognize it when God shows up? What are the signs of God's presence? And then how are you supposed to recognize it when God talks to you? And I thought that um, you could see so clearly in this temple a way of demarcating who is the community in which this God is present. And then you could see in this community and in other communities sort of a, a way of pointing to the presence of God for people who might not feel that they could recognize God's presence. That was like most evident in evangelical Christianity, where people would actually, you know, would sort of talk about how they felt when God showed up. They had this whole language of God showing up and how they would feel in their body. And they would learn to be able to pick out of their minds, out of the flow of their thoughts, those communications that they felt came, came from God and which came from themselves. Or, or I suppose the possibility, I don't recall you're talking about this, but in this book, which but which came from, I don't know, a, a negative force, a, a demon or devil. Was that an issue also? Right. So yeah. once you are, you know, what it is to live in the world is to encounter things that are good and things that are not so good. And once you open a rep, an understanding that the world is full of supernatural presence, um, most religions have a representation of the negative supernatural and the positive supernatural. And if you're going to do that, you need not only to have the event, to be able to recognize the events which those spirits have caused, but also have a way to recognize when those spirits show up in a way that the human is conscious of it. And so the religion, the faith has to teach people how to do this recognition. And what I saw, I ended up sort of in this book distinguishing between between what I call the faith frame and sort of 
kindling presence. So there's, I think, humans, humans of faith, live with sort of two different frames. There's this kind of the everyday world that we all live live within. And then there's this sort of the faith frame, the way that we think when we think and gods and spirits are really salient to us. So one of the things I caught that first made me think about this is that you know Christians will say that God is God can do everything. God is all powerful. They never ask God to feed the dog. So you know they 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 behave as if God is not in fact always in sort of a member of the everyday world. But they really want to experience God. You know, in the everyday world, and, you know, you go to church. This is true of shul as well. Is that the, really the challenge is how do you live in such a way that when you're doing ordinary, mundane things like driving to the supermarket, feeding your dog, writing a term paper, you're able to sort of hold your understanding of the world as containing God, at, you know, alongside and intimately interwoven with the everyday world. That's really, really hard. And it's a lot easier and it's a lot more compelling for people who are committed to this, you know, the supernatural being. It's um, it's a lot it's it's more powerful if that if that being comes to feel as if that being is real. So, you know, many Many secular folks, they look at religion, and to them the question is, does this person believe? What I saw, I saw people go to church, and I saw them want to experience God more visibly, vividly, that they, they wanted to have God present in their life. They wanted not to be the kind of person who went to church, resolved to be like Jesus, got into the car, and then yelled at their kids. And yet they were that kind of person. So how did they, how did they avoid that? Well, they wanted to experience God as more present, and I saw that if they, you know, if they were able to experience God as more present, then the faith frame would come closer. And once the faith frame came closer, they were also more likely to be able to experience God more vividly. And so the work of the book is really trying to make sense of how people from ordinary ways of paying attention, this is why I call it kindling, and you kindle a fire from ordinary stuff, twigs and debris. And how is it that people learn to pay attention so that this, you know, something happens so that they feel God sort of kindle into vivid realness? Yeah, it's a question. This was something that struck me, and I had to think about it a while. You you say that it's it's a question of of paying attention, and I suppose it's a question of how you go about paying attention. Mm-hmm. And you you uh, you say, I'm quoting, you say, faith is an act of paying attention, and and then I'll finish the sentence. And it's hard to sustain because in many ways faith flouts facts. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you've got this, I mean, in all the big religions, to use our Noren Zion's term, in all those big religions, God is a just God. God is a kind God. 
God rewards those who are observant. And, you know, the world is not particularly reliably kind or just or rewarding people who are observant. It's hard not to miss that. And so I began to shift my attention from, like, why do people pray when the prayer doesn't always work, to what is it that people are doing when they're praying that helps them to feel that God is more present, that helps them to feel that there's a sense of interaction, that helps them to feel the interaction itself is a kind of satisfactory reward. Right. So whether a prayer is answered or not is, of course, it's important on one level, um, mm-hmm. but on another level, it's not quite the point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what I describe in this book is really two things. I describe, first of all, the fact that prayer functions kind of like cognitive behavioral therapy, that it's a way of managing the your own thought. It asks you to attend to what is good rather than what is bad. Right, my favorite example of this is a evangelical woman who um, was in Chicago in the, in the winter and said that she came out of her apartment and it was completely miserable. It was slow, you know, sleeting and whatever. And she sort of um, thanked God that it wasn't worse, that she was able to walk freely on the street. And uh, that just so st- struck me because it's a way of seeing what is good about the world rather than whinging. Mm-hmm. And so that's one thing. You're shifting your attention to the good. You are focusing uh, your, your attention on small acts. You know, so you, when, when you confess, you tend to, to look at these little things that you did yesterday, which are doable things that you can kind of fix rather than enormous things about the world. Um, and you ask. And to ask is a, is a positive act. It is a kind of action in the world, regardless of whether you get an, get an answer. Um, this is Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Just, there's a sense that the decision to, the, the act of prayer is an act in the world, which is an assertion of self in the face of challenge. Those are kind of the principles of a good sort of therapeutic encounter. And I think that those are, I I see those in many prayer practices. I also see in prayer practice a relationship with a being who, if the person of faith is lucky, whom they adore. And and what's so striking is the sense of being with somebody else in the face of difficulties. And that, uh, that I saw was just being very, very powerful for people. And it, again, it's easy to think of prayer as, as a request for a response, but it's the act itself that is often quite satisfying. 
Yeah, I think I, I you make that very clear in the book. Let me let me put it that way. So one of the ways you have of talking about that, which I thought was really interesting, was you talk about flexible ontologies. Mm-hmm. And uh, could you say something about that? Well, I think that it's again. It's, this goes back to the question of whether people um, ever ask God to feed their dogs. You know, and and, and they don't. Uh, they act. They behave as if they have sort of different cognitive attitudes or different ideas about how realness works when they're talking about gods and spirits and when they're talking about tables and chairs. And I think that um, it's really tempting sometimes to look at somebody who has a point of view, you know, who's a person of faith, who believes in this invisible, powerful stuff. And if you're a secular person, you just think that they're wrong. But I think the person of faith is not, you know, the here again, you know, on again, off again, off again quality of that person's experience of invisible others is as apparent to them as it is to the secular observer. And so I think that, you know, to understand how faith works, you have to see people holding their commitments in these flexible ways um, so that they're not asking, you know, what God says in the sacred text to be true in in the everyday in an ordinary way. All the time. Sometimes, yes, not all the time. So, so there's this quality of you know things. Things are and are not right. I think you say that at some point in the book. Like things are are true, but they're also not true because you have this flexible ontology, and it kind of depends on how you how you pick it up and look at it, how you hold it in your hand. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so. And and that's why spiritual experience matters so much, because it, when somebody personally experiences the presence, whether what they take to be the presence of a spirit or a god, it, you know, it can change their hesitation, their own skepticism, their own sense of what might be real in the world. And it can help. It can help them hold on a little bit more to the God they want to be real, but which suddenly may feel as if it's not real. Right. So, so that was one thing you said in the book that struck me was you said that in your field work, one of the things you noticed was that children tended to be more skeptical about mm-hmm. um, the spiritual domain uh, than adults did. And that was a surprise to me. And of course, I thought immediately about Santa Claus, but Santa Claus is complicated. Mm-hmm. So, um, well, can you say something? Yeah. So this is an observation that's been made for many years. Margaret Mead once said, a, ch- a child will not believe in the bear, on the monster under the bed, unless the adult supplies the monster. So one of the things that we, and that's certainly too in Santa Claus, right? I mean, adults invest an enormous amount of energy into bringing Santa Claus to the awareness of their children. 
and it often, and the child's commitment to Santa Claus often vanishes long before the adult is ready for that commitment to vanish. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah. Yeah, no, that, well. So, so, no, it, it, so <laughs> it just turns out that ethnographically and, psycho, and from, in psychological work, that children are pretty good at distinguishing between a pretend and fantasy, <laughs> and that they are less likely to, um, you know, elaborate, develop, reflect on, um, be interested in claims about supernatural beings than adults. Adults have a lot more at stake, really, and a lot more time to reflect, develop, manage, um, and consider their ideas about gods and spirits. Right. So is is it the case? I mean, one of the, and something else you said. I guess let me just shift to this. Um, something else you point out is that we have a tendency in this culture, I'd say, to believe that um, you know, if you come to a uh, religion and you come from a skeptical background or a, a secular background, then it's really hard work to um, convince yourself, you know, to, to make that move. But you, you make the point that even in a culture that is religious from the ground up, that there's a lot of work that has to be done to, um, mm-hmm. to make that a reality. Because, the, yes, I think there always is, is work. Because there is this sense in which spirits are always flouting the world as it is, I think there, it's actually a little easier to believe in mean spirits than good spirits that there's this continuum of plausibility in which, you know, and you're, we're all familiar with this. I mean, you know, late at night, it's a little silent. It's, you know, this is a little creepy. It's, it's just like easy to, to think that there might be something supernaturally out there. Even if you don't believe in it, you might not go into the forest if somebody says it's there. You know, that's kind of the mm-hmm. way humanity, Pascal's dilemma. But to really believe that, you know, there's a loving God who promises to deliver love to you. I mean, I have not met a Christian for whom, you know, that was always true. I mean, I think people are const- constantly sort of believe that, you know, they have this, even a, a completely devout Christian will have a sense that, you know, God is loving, kind, responsive, whatever, but maybe not for them. And that, so that, you know, that, 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 that ability to make God's care salient, available, um, responsive, that requires a kind of training of attention so that you're looking for signs of God's presence, you're practicing so that you are um, honing your mind to be focused on God rather than on something else, you are training yourself to look, you know, for the for God's response in the way that your your community recognizes that. You are practicing your inner attention to that spirit, so that and that inner attention sort of helps to make God feel more real. And this is actually someplace where I've done a bunch of um, psychological, uh, more experimental work in which I have observed um, prayer-like practice 
in which people really attend to their inner experience. And I have seen that this practice will change the vividness of inner experience. And there's a story to tell both about people who are more likely to report that they feel God's presence vividly, and a story to tell about the amount of amount of uh, what you might call mental imagery cultivation or inner sense cultivation through which what must be imagined comes to feel more vivid. And that is something that's kind of real about human experience. There are some people who are more likely to say that um, a god interacts with them, talks back to them, that they can feel that God's presence, that they've heard that God's voice and there's also, you know, people who consistently sit and attend to the presence of that God in their inner mind, in their inner world. Over the more time they spend doing that, the more likely they are to have this vivid sense that this invisible being is there. Right. So you mentioned uh, just in passing in the book that. I think it was in the evangelical community that people were expected to pray 30 minutes a day. And, and mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's really pretty interesting. I mean, certainly, in, I guess, in the Buddhist tradition, other traditions, prayer is also something that you do for extended periods of time. But mm-hmm. if you were just thinking of it in terms of, I don't know, I suppose, prayer as, you know, please do this for me, then... 30 minutes wouldn't make a lot of sense. So it really is more a question of establishing that connection. Mm-hmm. So the evangelicals I spend time with are charismatic Christians. They seek to have a, um, a sense of a back and forth an interaction with God's presence. I saw that it was often hard for people who came into the church to learn to do this. So people would say things like, oh, well, you know, God doesn't talk to me, but I know he talks to you. Will you talk to God about this for me? Hmm. And then, like, you know, six months later, they say they recognize God's voice the way they recognize their mom's voice on the phone. And, you know, and what people are, are doing in their prayer practice is often um, freeform, you know, so I'll give it a technical term, inner sense cultivation or mental imagery cultivation. People are walking with God, so they're going for a walk, and they are in their mind. They are representing that that God or Jesus is walking by their side, or they are standing in God's throne room, and they're trying to feel the heat of God's power on their cheeks, Um, or they are kind of sitting on a park bench and they're trying to cuddle up against God and they're trying to you know, imagine that God has his arm around their shoulders. And people would model to me things like, oh, yeah, I talk to God about my day and ask God about his. And they know that this is a, has a complicated relationship to the real reality of God. That's another kind of, kind of you know, ontological flexibility. They know that if they're sitting next to God on the park bench and they are, you know, God's got his arm around their shoulders, that this is like, this is kind of complicated relationship with the God of the New Testament. But they're still, they don't think it's, they're making it up. 
they are sort of living with the ambiguity of not knowing exactly, um, you know, of knowing that a human needs to needs to hold God in their human imagination and that God is beyond. Um, and I really did. Sorry, the the, the, the puppy is uh, objects to rain. Ah. <laughs> Too bad for the puppy, because that's what we've got. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's very hard. Um, and uh, and her sister, who has not does not object to rain, has just been taken out for a walk. Hmm. She also objects to that. Um, so anyway, uh, I, so when people are praying, you know, they're doing just what people did when. Um, when I was hanging out in these magical groups where people would develop a relationship with, say, Sekhmet or Demeter, and they would spend time kind of, you know, telling themselves things about this goddess and talking to the goddess and imagining themselves in a relationship with the goddess and then feeling the goddess respond. And, you know, people would say to, to me things like, you know, they, they just say this, like, the goddess wants me to do some ritual work on this this island, but I don't have the money to get there, so she's going to have to wait. <laughs> mm-hmm. The first time I heard that, I was like, "Whoa!" And then I, you know, and then I went to an evangelical group, and I was doing these interviews, and a young woman said to me, "You know, you seem really interested in God. If you want to get, if you really want to understand how, what who God is for me, you ought to have a cup of coffee with God." You ought to know who God is for you. Again, whoa, have a cup Mm -hmm. of coffee with God. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's not prayer in a kind of recitation of a rosary. Um, But it is time spent with the invisible being. Is that doggy too annoying? You know, we're just going to say, look, this is COVID times. People are in lockdown. Okay. Accept it. Okay. All right. So, um, okay. Well, but it actually maybe it leads into something I wanted to talk about in, in a kind of roundabout way. It makes sense in my mind, um, and and that is that um, in in your work in your own field work, you really immerse yourself in these communities. Like with the witchcraft group, you went through the whole training, right? You spent time every every day practicing meditating. And, and did the training. Um, and, and I know not that much about anthropology, but I, I gather, I mean, that that's, you know, some people like to do it that way. Some people feel they need to be a little more distant, but it seems like you really immerse yourself fully. I do. I, I had this insight a couple of, a number of years ago when I was reading um, Jack Krakauer. Is that John Krakauer? Mm-hmm. Um, um, Yes, John Krakauer, Into Thin Air. I was reading his, one of his essays on, on mountaineering, and he was describing walking across an ice flow with like, a bunch of curtain rods sticking out of his backpack so that if he fell between, you know, between a, you know, into a ravine, into a crevasse, hmm. the curtain rods would catch him on the ice and he would be, he'd be able to scramble back. And I thought to myself, this is not me. You know, I don't live my life like that. But 
um, I do take psychological risks. I think it's interesting to, you know, as far as I, you know, you can't infer from your own experience of, of practice and involvement what it's like for anybody else, but you can learn what people learn. And that's what I can see. I can see that people learn to pick up the signs of God's presence. I can learn how, how they're learning to do that. Uh, I can see how they're learning to do that. I can see how, I can see that people sit together in a group and they talk about God and, and I interview them. They all have very different understandings about God. But, you know, but they're able to talk to each other in a way that doesn't really make that evident. Um, sorry about that. Um, and so it, I, I really feel that it teaches me something. Yeah, that makes really good sense. I, I, you have a passage in the book, um, I don't recall exactly now, but when you're with this evangelical group and it's really after you've finished your study and you go back to see them and they're very apprehensive about about your attitude. It's like, well, are you going to now reveal that you think they're a bunch of jerks or or, you know, and you've just been kind of playing along? Or do you really, are you really moved in the same way they are? And, and you say something that I think is very judicious, you, you know, but, and, and they're very relieved. So, so I, I assume that kind of getting involved, you know, f- making a, a personal connection with people, that has something to do with, with your wanting to really take the risk of, of fully immersing yourself. Mm-hmm. And I seek to represent people in ways that they recognize something about their experience. And I've been able to do that more or less so that people hear what that people will read me as writing with an outsider's voice in a way that captures some of their insider's experience. And uh, mostly people, at least the people who end up talking to me, feel that I've captured something that they've experienced. Mm-hmm. So it's it's different, of course. Like when you were in the shul, you there are a lot of rules about how women are supposed to present themselves, at least when they're in the shul, but also outside. And and I assume it was pretty clear that you weren't doing that. But but or I well, I mean, I, you I, were. I, I was. I mean, I was dressing appropriately. I was, um, you know, I I, I did I, I followed the rules as as one and as, as they did. Okay. Okay. Okay, so, so as far as you can now, now the rules are going to be a little different. One, you have a, a pretty extensive discussion of going into three different evangelical groups. One was in the U.S., one was in India, and one in Africa, and and there were similarities, but there were also differences that I, I gather really well. I don't know whether you speculate about. Know, how those relate to the cultures in which they were operating, but there were clear differences. For instance, in in how they thought about hearing God's voice, things like mm-hmm. that. So I was struck by the fact that you know, really it was the same faith, the same theological structure, but I was struck that people seemed to experience God more vividly, and there I saw differences in the way that people talked about feeling God's presence. 
so that there were, you know, the Americans were much more likely to, and, and, and really I connected this to the way people thought about their minds themselves, so that the Americans make such a big to-do about their mind and have such, a, such an individual model of what it is to be a person. That they, when they were talking about God, they would really, you know, present a much. Um, so they're more likely to talk about the presence of God in their minds and, and have a less vivid sense, a, a less external quality of God's presence. And when they were talking about their their sense of God's presence, they would sort of feel they would talk about interior imaginative representations. And in India, people had a more or more likely to say that, that God was vividly present, that they had a sense of his external presence. And they were more likely to talk about feeling God between people. And in in Ghana, you know, of course we're we're really talking about twenty people, so it's a small number of people. But people were more comfortable talking about God as a supernatural power outside of themselves and you know and they would feel that God you know as a kind of authoritative outside supernatural force and I thought that this had to do with the way people modeled what it was to be a person in the world it was to have a mind which you know made sense of ambiguous experiences. And I think that part of the story I tell in the book is that these vivid experiences people have, I mean, they're real experiences. I mean, people have a, a sense of hearing with their ears. They have a feeling of force in the body. They have a sense that there is a, a being present in the room. They know exactly where that, that being is, even though they can't smell or, 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 or touch the being. Uh, sometimes they do feel the being touch their shoulders. Uh, so there are all these, these experiences people have. And I think that these experiences are in part, in part they arise, so this is a not, I'm going to leave to one side the question that whether there's an ultimate supernatural source whether I can tell the difference between when that source is present or not. But I think that these judgments or these experience, these vivid experiences arise from in-between experiences. So when I talk to hundreds and hundreds of people about experiencing spirit, and, you know, they'll say things like, sometimes I know it wasn't in my head, but I'm not sure it was in the world. They'll talk about, you know, the corner of their eye. But so, and I think from my reading of neuroscience and from my conversations with people that these events that become powerful moments of the experience of God, like Augustine becomes a Christian because he runs into the garden, he's upset because of a, of a conversation with a friend, he uh, throws himself at the foot of a fig tree, and he hears a voice say, tole lege, take it and read. So that's a sensory experience of an immaterial God. And I think those experiences, the seed of those experiences is at the edge of awareness. 
and the way that we think about our minds and ourselves um, and our theories of God shape those events to be more sensory or less sensory or more poppy out in the world or more internal. And that's really what I saw in this cultural comparison. So when people um, have these in-between experiences, I think that's very uh, interesting ways of corner, out of the corner of their eye experiences. Um, do they then, maybe, maybe you can't say, but, but does that then tend to lead into a situation where they have ever more direct experiences? Yes. So one of the things that I saw, and another reason I talk about this is kindling, is that I saw that people who have experiences are more likely to have more experiences. And there is a sense that these experiences become fluent and habituated for them, but in particular patterns. So depending on your culture, you might you have somewhat different kind of patterns of supernatural experience. Um, I'll say one of our contrasts actually was uh, Buddhists and, and, and Christians. So with a colleague, Julia Cassanidi, we compared the way that people talked about their spiritual experience. Um, and like the Buddhists, you know, they did not say, you know, they reported hallucination-like events at the same rate as the Americans. But they didn't, as the American Christians, but the, you know, the Buddhist culture is a culture that really values calm. And the Christians really value kind of arousal because arousal to them was a sign that you know, when they don't feel in control, it's sort of an invitation to think that maybe God is in control, maybe God is present. And so there were certain kinds of experiences that people reported at the same rate, and there were other kinds of experiences that they reported at really different rates. And so and, and what I saw from my data is that these experiences, so there was specific kinds of experiences that tended to emerge in one culture rather than another. But it was also true that you know, the domain of experiences kind of hung together and would increase over time. And these experiences did become sort of more fluent for people. And so, in some sense, they felt God becoming more real. Hmm. So it's kind of a um, a learning to move back and forth, and, and and I suppose the the bias, if religion is something that really matters to you, I don't mean bias in the negative sense, but the the tendency is to go toward the religious. I mean, if you're able to move back and forth, then what you will cherish, what you will value. Is, is the religious side of things. Mm -hmm. And of course, that's the aim of the person of faith, to you know, have that presence of God always feel alive and responsive and there. And you know, we know that that's, you know, if that God is experienced as loving, that's good for that person's body. And if that God is not experienced as loving, then that's not so good. But I was quite struck that um, I thought that God's 
you know, these, this relationship with God actually was a real relationship. When God was kindled, people talked as if God was a person among people to some extent. And they often behaved as if God was a person among people. And this relationship would change over time and would grow and develop. Um, and so that was quite striking. I am sorry. Yeah. For the That's okay. We've, we've, we've agreed that it's okay. Okay. Yes. Um, so, um, you know, I'm thinking of a story that, that, well, I guess maybe the question I have in mind is that this idea of inviting God to have a cup of coffee with you, say, or, or you know, to have a relationship with God the same way that you would have a relationship with a friend, it, 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 that makes very good sense to me, well, partly because I read your other book, um, when you talk about the evangelical um, movement um, or certain aspects of it. Um, but I, I don't know, I mean, you know, does that really make sense? Like, you know, you do talk about field work that was done. I'm not sure if it was your field work with the Thai Buddhists. They wouldn't talk about it that way, would they? No. Uh, so, so they're, they're not, well, it's sort of, the, you know, depends. I mean, there's this uh, famous article by this woman, I think called Rita Gross, who talks yeah. about um, the fact that even in, you know, it's that it's American Buddhism that is free of spirits. That in other Buddhisms, you know, you are addressing prayers to a being, and there is an emerging relationship with a being. So, in certainly Tibetan Buddhism, there are other beings, left, right, and center, and people are working very hard to develop a relationship with Tara, for example to experience themselves in relationship and responding to and developing those, those others. Um, so it really, you know, all of this will depend on the model of faith, although it is also true that even without a um, faith-driven model of spirit, people sometimes do have experiences of spirit. Um, and then, of course, then... You know, there was become famous examples of you know, the famous transformative arguments for the presence of external spirits. Mm -hmm. So, so you know, you say a number of times that the um, you know that reality is a feeling as much as a fact, mm -hmm. and and it seems to me that that really is very central to what the whole thesis of of the book is that it's a question of of making something real by feeling it. Mm -hmm. Well, or that um, what it is for something to be real is to have a feeling. Right, that's, it's not, better, that's better said, yes. Yeah, so it's not so much as, you know, do I believe that the sky is blue, as having a, a visceral sense of blueness, as it were. Um, and I think that's what's so interesting about spirits is that people do come to have this visceral sense of presence. And so people can have a cognitive commitment to God, to the real reality of God. But that's a little different from the sort of the visceral presence of God. And what people often want, I mean, they don't always want this. I mean, what, what, there's, uh, what I've begun to do a little bit recently is talk to people who experience um, 
grew up in the evangelical church and they learned there was such a rich atmosphere of God being sort of inside you and, you know, God talking to you in your mind and being present with you always. And, you know, and that's, and for some people, you know, when God is wonderful, that's a fabulous experience. But if for reasons of politics or sexuality, um, that's not such a wonderful experience. If you if you have, feel like you have a visceral sense of God's presence, and you know you've kindled God so that God is very alive for you, but you also think that God can't stand you, it's a terrible feeling. It feels like you're being you know suffocated from within, and that's quite difficult. Yes, I can I can really imagine that. But you know, there was this whole sense of of religion what little i remember now is you know in, in the early american um times you know, sinners in the hands of an angry god oh. um, you know that was I, I mean that was meant to awaken faith right but yes but, yeah well and again possibly very effectively in that you know probably fear uh, generates implicit expectations of God's presence more than love um, because love is more unbelievable for a start and fear feels like something you know I, if, if, even if I don't believe in it I should probably behave as if it's true um, right. so there is that and there's this kind of funny shift then in this in a more secular setting where the angry God has diminished because we are, as it were, in a religion, religious seller's market. Um, so churches are trying, you know, you don't have to be, you can be a perfectly reasonable person and be a secular person. It's perfectly acceptable within our social world. I mean, you know, within limits. And um, we haven't yet, we haven't yet elected an atheist to be uh, president. But there's, um, but, you know, if you, like if you go into an evangelical church these days, pastors are afraid that they're not afraid that people are believing in the wrong kind of God. They're afraid that people aren't believing. So they're really trying to get people into the door. And the God that they're representing is not an angry God who will send you to hell if you don't follow this way of believing that they're selling it so they're trying to make available a loving God who will just make your life better. And then since that's harder for people to really get their mind around, to experience more vividly, it's probably a more rewarding God. Well that's interesting. So it's in one way it's an easier sell, but but it's a harder buy or something like that. Yeah, so if you if you like Jonathan Edwards God is um a God that was probably easier to believe in because, you know, he's basically saying that, you know, it's only Jesus that's going to intervene because otherwise you are like a little, little spider that's going to get snuffed out by this, by this angry God. And so you'd better get your act together and people would web, would weep and you know, whatever. And have all sorts of cool supernatural experiences, by the way. Um, Whereas the modern, you know, the Rick Warrens of the world and Saddleback, they are trying to persuade you that if you 
adopt this God, you'll have a sense of purpose, you'll feel loved. Um, but that is in, in many ways more satisfying, but, but, um, but harder to believe. Right. I, I, I'm going to tell you a quick story and then we'll, then we'll start to wind up. And that is just years ago, I was in Amsterdam and in the, um, outside the train station, there was a big neon sign on the square there and it was in, it would flash in English and then it would flash in Dutch. And the English said, Jesus loves you. And the Dutch said, God is watching. That sounds like, like a cultural difference, difference right, that right. <laughs> has a kind of certain robust realness. <laughs> okay, so, so um, it, it seems like, you know, we have, I mean, really, we could go on. It's, I, I, I really enjoy pursuing these topics. But tell us a little bit about what you're working on now. Where do you go now? So we just had a paper that came out that was able to show, and this is the, the more sciencey side of my work, we looked at um, thousands of people in, you know, in five different countries, and we were able to show, show that people who are higher in absorption, which is this sort of proclivity I was talking about, people who are more likely to experience God. So people who are more able to get caught up in their imaginations, who enjoy their sensory experience, they are more likely to um, experience God vividly, and people who imagine their mind is more porous and open are more likely to experience God vividly. Um, and so that is very cool. Um, and so, and that's true in different faiths, five, in five different countries, in rural and urban, urban settings. So that, I'm very excited about that. These days I'm writing a book on voices. The way people experience voices in both religious and settings of religion and settings of madness. And the question is, when are these the same experiences and when are they different? And how would we know? And so that's what I'm writing about. That sounds great. I mean, this whole issue of, of madness and religion is... Um it's not as though I've thought about it a lot, but but I know that people would really love to be able to have more clarity in that, and I imagine you'll be able to to bring that to them, and and in the way that you've done in this book by really casting things in a new light and creating categories that really shift our way of looking at this. So, so thank you so much, Tanya. It's it's really been uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, we've been talking with Tanya Lerman, and um, her book is called How God Becomes Real. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jack. It's been just, just a pleasure. <laughs> okay, great. Um, well, when your next book comes out, if, uh, if we're still doing this sort of thing, I, I would love to have you on again. That'd be 